You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Salem, you are all too much fun. Let's just remain standing for some, for some text. I won't sit you down again. I'm going to reread a little bit of what was read this morning, and then we'll read our gospel text, and then I'll preach for a little while. A little while. Words. Isaiah 60, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And then we'll skip to verse 6, they shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. And then Matthew chapter 2, on this Sunday of Epiphany, where we celebrate the revelation that people who don't deserve to be brought into the presence of God are invited into the presence of God. Put your hands together if you're happy about Epiphany this morning. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would anoint this room this morning to make preaching easy and to make hearing your word a delight to the soul. We pray that you would anoint every preacher and every congregation, that preaching would be easy all over Beacon and the Hudson Valley, and hearing your word would be a transformative process. We thank you that your hand has been, will be, and will forever be upon your church. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Epiphany is the celebration of the revelation of God's mercy and acceptance. It's truth exposed in a confronting way because as much as we rejoice and I believe that we have an extremely healthy church that understands that brokenness is going to enter the church doors because brokenness needs to. And so if we're looking for good behavior or the right lifestyle to walk through the front doors, then it's not a church that we're in. It's a cult. We're looking for brokenness to enter. And so it makes me fearful that many churches, conversations I've had, things I've witnessed, things I've heard, would never have let the wise men come into the church because, after all, they were pagans who were worshiping the stars. 
And I don't know that people would have let idol worshipers who seem to have found Jesus through their idol worship enter because their lifestyle would be poor. I'll let that hang out there for a moment because I'm dramatic and those are the things I like to do. In 1 John 3.2, it says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Seeing Christ reveals what we were and are and will be. And so I apologize to all the people who love grammatically correct titles, but the title of my message this morning is Time to Realize. It is the first pun I've ever used in a title. I hate myself for it. Mike Mandia was so thrilled about it. Everybody who's interacted with him found that funny. Herod is who we were. Jesus is who we will be. Only if we see now with real eyes and have an epiphany. Herod is who we were. Jesus is who we will be. We will move from one to the other or from the other to the other depending on what we choose to look at and how we choose to look at it. I will, spoiler alert, a very old movie because it's probably more than 20 years old now or something, and so it doesn't matter if you haven't seen it yet. I don't care. How many have seen The Sixth Sense? That was a test. We have some problems in the church. We know we're not supposed to go to the movies. Just kidding. My mom and dad are like, that's right. Oh, man. I'm in, I'm in the sixth sense, and one of my friends who saw the movie, halfway through the movie, decides he's going to leave, and he yells out into the movie theater, Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time. It's a perfect analogy for what epiphany is, because not everybody in the room heard him. I heard him. So I'm sitting there midway through the movie, and a light bulb went off. I thought Bruce Willis and his wife had a bad relationship, because every time they're talking, she's ignoring him. <laughs> so I kind of thought the movie was about ghosts and divorce or something. But the minute Richie yells out in the middle of the movie, Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time, halfway through you reinterpret something of the past, which causes you to expect new things for the rest of the movie. At the time, extremely annoying. But somewhere, if Richie Thomas would ever hear this podcast, I love you and I thank you for a great sermon illustration 20 years ago or more. In the moment, one of the heaviest pages in the Bible is the page in the middle of your Bible that says the New Testament, and you have to turn it because when you turn that page, you're turning 400 years. In the middle of this story, an epiphany shows up that pagan idol worshipers, Ishmaels, if you will, are now invited into the covenant that God made with Abraham. 
And all of a sudden, you start to, you go back to Genesis, like I did with the sixth sense, and you start rereading it in light of the fact that something unexpected happened that redefines the past and sets new expectations for the future. That's what this moment of epiphany is. God revealed as an infant with pagan idol worshipers opening their treasures to him. This is not what people had in mind. This is not what the scribes and the Pharisees had in mind. It's why they're constantly fighting with Jesus. And because we have that story, we will forever think we're not like the scribes and Pharisees because we can see them on paper, but we all always are. Because when we're convinced that something is one way and then we have an emotional attachment to it, anything that says that that thing needs to be redefined, we reject. Like I've said before, we're not good at learning new things. We're good at reaffirming what we already know. Epiphany says relook at what was in light of what is to have a new understanding of what will be. How do we know that this is what God wanted to do? Because the star did not lead the wise men to Bethlehem. The star led them to Herod. Herod got Pharisees together to say, where will this child be born? And the Pharisees told them it would be in Bethlehem. And when they got to Bethlehem, the star showed up again. So the star did not lead them to Jesus. The star led them to Herod. And Herod sent them to Jesus. This little nuance, us thinking that the star led them to Bethlehem, is not true when you read the text. They went to Jerusalem. And then Herod ascertained when the child, where the child was to be born, and they sent them to Bethlehem. So what does this tell us? This tells us that God is using these pagan people that are in, this, in these 12 verses are going to interact with two kings. They're going to interact with two kings on two thrones. One is going to be Herod in his temple, and one is going to be King Jesus in a manger, probably about two or three years old, so maybe he's not in the manger anymore. I hope he's not. Because clearly Mary and Joseph have not Googled how to be good parents because they're leaving him in the crib for too long. Everybody should know that. Whew, that I'm, I am convinced that the fullness of time that God showed up was purposely not during social media. He never would have come now. Can you even imagine? Whole nother comedy routine. We won't talk about that now. These men standing in the presence of Herod, which would have been breathtaking, don't do anything in his presence, but they fall down at the presence of this child and they open their treasures to him. Let's look at what they gave him. Three gifts revealed the distinction between Christ and Herod. First, they gave him gold. Gold is what Herod wanted, and gold is what God was going to be generous with. They gave him gold because gold is what Herod craved, and gold is what God is generous with. They gave him frankincense which is worship. Worship is what Herod wanted, and worship is what Jesus was going to show us how to do. Herod said, worship me. Jesus says, watch me worship the Father so you can learn how to do it. 
Gold represents status. Herod craves it. God gives it away. He puts it into a manger. Herod wants worship. Jesus shows us how to worship. And myrrh, which ironically is not listed in the Isaiah text that's predicting this moment. See, the Isaiah text said people from other nations are going to come and bring gifts to the kingdom of Israel. And the gifts are going to be gold and frankincense. So the first thing we have to see about epiphany, about redefining is, if an Israelite read Isaiah, they would think that people are going to come and bring gifts to the kingdom that is Israel. These people show up bringing gifts to a person because Jesus is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a place. The kingdom of God is a person and anyone who's submitted to that person. That's why Jesus says the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's here. But the Isaiah text leaves out myrrh. Myrrh is a burial ointment. And the wise men, or wisdom, have a hunch. We'll bring what's prophesied, but then I feel like we should bring one more thing to this child. Ointment that is typically used to pray that one day a dead person will be raised again. Myrrh is a burial ointment. Myrrh is what Herod will cause, but it's what Jesus will allow himself to go through. You see these three gifts? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. God receives gifts to show us what to do with gifts when we receive them. He receives status, and so he shows us that here's what you do with status. You give it away. He receives worship. Here's what he does when he receives worship. He says, watch me worship somebody else. I'm going to worship the Father so you can learn to worship the Father. And he receives burial ointment to say that this is what ruthless, tyrannical kings and presidents and prime ministers, this is what they use as a threat to get what they want, and I'm going to walk right into it and let it happen to me to show them that that way of leading has absolutely no inherent power in it whatsoever. Intimidation is not power. And Jesus is going to walk right into Roman intimidation and say, do your worst, and I'm going to shake you at the very core of what you use to prop yourself up. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh are not for Christmas cards. They're there to show us that when we get gifts, we do with gifts what Jesus did with them, and we give them away. So we must interpret the kingship of Jesus. Listen, if you're quiet right now, I'm telling you this next part. Let's, can we still be friends when this is over? It's not me, it's you. <laughs> Just kidding. We must interpret the kingship of Jesus through three lenses. First lens, and I'm talking to us now. Here's where the pastor has to zero in on his time and space. And so, the government. Do we want our government to be run in power or humility? This is seriously what we have to look at, because here's the reality. I will not talk politics too much from the pulpit, but I will talk civility from the pulpit. And when 
uncivilized people enter politics, sometimes it does need to be called out. And I know talking about civility in politics is like ripping tape off paper. Some paper is going to come off when I rip the tape. I'm willing to sacrifice that because here's the reality. We live in a world where the axe, like John the Baptist would say, is laid to the root of our two main branches of government, which are the Republicans and the Democrats. And I think it's a pastor's job to say that the axe is laid to the root of the tree of both of them. Because as a gross oversimplification, a little bit dramatic in my own pithy way of speaking, Republicans typically bow at the altar of power intimidation, and Democrats typically bow at the altar of public opinion. And when we bow at either of those two altars, we end up in Herod's Praetorium, not at the manger of Christ. Is that an oversimplification? Yes. For anybody who wants to assess what I just said, I'm preaching, I'm not teaching, and we're not having a discussion, so I'm making very general statements. But I still stand behind both of them. I do. We're looking for humility. What should excite us about a leader we vote for is humility. Not how much agreement they get, not much how money they raise, not how many temper tantrums they throw when people disagree with them. Not how powerful they want our military to be, but the humility they show to the weak, the hungry, the poor, the sick, the fatherless, the widow, and everybody else who can't help themselves. And I will say right now, there are good and bad about what I just said on both sides. There really are. And if you're on one of the two sides, it is your Christian responsibility to see the good on the other. Oh, man, we could just, you know, why don't we just do Eucharist? <laughs> Let's, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. If Jesus can fight to see good in us, we have to fight to see good in a Republican or a Democrat if we're the other. We have to. Because here's what we know, and I could say this because it happened in the last few administrations. I can say this. When we disagree with Jesus, he does not put the kingdom of heaven into a government shutdown. Isaiah says her gates will always be open and her doors will never be shut because Jesus just loves even when he's disagreed with. <laughs> and I'm telling you right now, like I, I, don't, I don't care about tangents right now. I'm telling you right now, if you just heard that and you only thought about what's happening now, I'm saying shame on you because you should have heard what I said just before I said that. It happened in many administrations throughout the history of our country, and you need to fight to see the good in all of them. Okay. I'm just thinking about people. I know I'm going to get some emails, so I'm just disclaiming like crazy. I love this job. I really do. All right. We also have to interpret the kingship of Jesus or the kingship of Herod in terms of our social family levels of government. What are, how are we looking for our families to respond to us? Are we looking for them to respond to our power or our humility? Are we looking for them to rise up and be powerful or to be humble? Our social networks, our friends, what are, they, what are we looking for them to see in us? Power or humility? How do we raise our kids? Power or humility? And watch this on a personal level. Do we exert Herod willpower over ourselves? Let me tell you something. The church has gotten this horribly wrong. Willpower does not 
get you out of your sin, no matter how many push-ups your willpower can do in a minute. Don't care how long it can hang on a chin-up bar. I don't know, care how much it can bench press. I don't care how many thousands of miles like Andy Dimitros it can run. Your willpower will never get you out of your sin. Only releasing power to the cross of Christ can get us out of our sin. That's the only thing. The Christian message is not get a, harder, get a more hard, more robust, more strength uh, willpower. The gospel is telling us to empty everything that we call power into the cross and say we can't, even if we want to, like Paul in Romans chapter 7. So the extent that I sin, I sin, I sin, and I think in 2019, I'm going to try harder. I'm just going to fall harder. Because if I threatened my church using intimidation techniques of preaching, which many pastors do, to get you to give or to get you to volunteer, I would be exerting tyrannical power over you. And if you listened and if you gave and if you volunteered, I would never know if it was real or not because I enslaved you to it with my words. It's the same thing on a personal level. If I succeed because I tried hard enough, I will never know if it was the grace of God or if it was me. And one day, here's, here's the spoiler, one day I'll find out it was me. We need to empty. We should not be Herod over ourselves. We don't need a stronger military. We've, we've, we've preached it the wrong way. We've called it the armor of God. The armor of God is character. Read it carefully. Read the armor of God very carefully. They're character traits. Salvation, peace, readiness, faith. They're character traits. It's not harder weaponry. It's being more weak to say, I need to put armor on in the first place. Only weak people put on armor. Only people who realize, I'm not impenetrable, put on armor. Salem, we don't try harder to be good Christians. We empty out all the power we could ever have to try at the foot of that cross and at this altar and say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Oh, God, make speed to save us. Oh, Lord, make haste to save us. That's what we say. We're not tyrants over ourselves. You're going to mess up in 2019. It might not be your best year ever. People stop doing it because nothing rhymes with 19 anymore. It's confusing. But here's the thing. You know what, Tony? I'll tell you. Somebody asked me recently, what, what are you saying to your church for 2019? Do you want to know what I think would be a great 2019? Imagine we had a perfectly normal year. How many would love just normal? Just normal. Just give me a normal year that feels normal. Some ups, some downs. We're all cool when we get here on December 31st. Like, we're good. Just normal. We don't need to be so stimulated all the time. Need slogans. Let's follow Jesus for 2019. Let's be weak in 2019. Let's realize we can't do it in 2019. So for fun, I, we put together a little chart. Is this, oh, we're working. Okay, good. The contrast between Herod and Jesus. First, outer appearance. This is, read, read, like, take a picture of this chart when it's done. And ask yourself, am I Herod or am I Jesus? Because, like, one of Jacqueline's favorite lines recently, as I've been talking about this, is like, hey, have a good day. Don't be a Herod. Like, that's what she's been. 
And when I get in the car and say, Father, forgive her, for she knows not what she does, I'm being a Jesus. So... No. It's me trying to serve the Lord. <laughs> outer appearance. Watch this. Herod's outer appearance always had to be, and I made up my own word for this, splendorized. He always had to be filled with splendor all the time to the point where Peter says to Jesus, look at the stones on this temple. Aren't they beautiful? And Jesus is like, I'm going to tear every one of them down. Not for theological reasons, because he's annoying. He's completely annoying. But here's the reality. Herod always has to be filled with splendor. Watch this. Jesus always presented himself just by what is necessary. You know, if that doesn't hurt all of us deeply, Jesus wore, said, drove, lived in what was necessary. And here's the reality. When, you, when necessary only is your normal, you have room to once in a while look splendid, but not need to maintain it, which will drain your emotions, your mental capacity, and your bank account. When you choose simplicity and normal and simply what is necessary, and that becomes okay with you, first of all, congratulations, you've reached maturity. When normal is finally okay with you and you're not bored by it, or you're bored by it and you're okay being bored, you're mature. Herods need to keep up appearances. Herods need to have the best. Herods need to always be maxed out. And here's the reality. There's no room for him to look better. He always looks the best he can. Jesus always looks normal. So when he goes to the Mount of Transfiguration, and you're like, whoa. But watch this. Also, because he was willing to look normal, when he looked all jacked up on the cross, we still call that beautiful too. Don't fight to splendorize yourself all the time. Just be okay with basic normal. Your car, your clothes, your house, your view of what you can decorate with. and I mean, just on and on and on. Just be normal. And once in a while, you'll have a moment. And once in a while, you'll go down a peg. And you'll be okay with both. Because normal is normal to you. I just can't stretch, stress this point any more than I'm trying. Okay? And if you do achieve normal for once, please don't act like that's splendid. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. Well, look how normal my clothes are. Don't do it. Don't do it. I'll be annoying too. What was Herod's motivation? His motivation was to be worshipped himself. To be... To be able to tell himself through other people's actions toward him that he means something. When we determine our value, not by what people think about us, because I think we're giving ourselves too much credit, but by how they act toward us. See, we kid ourselves and think, I, I care about what people think too much. You're not that mature. 
We care about how they act toward us. I don't care if you thought terrible things about me. If you treat me well, I'll get over it. (laughs) Man, look at what this person got me for Christmas. I heard they really don't like you. Shut up. I don't care. Look what they got me. We don't care what people think. We care about how they act. That's what makes us tick. They could think the worst stuff, man. You buy me a bottle of Johnny... What did you, quickly, what did Jesus do? <laughs> Herod wanted to be worshipped. Jesus, watch this, he lives to show us how to worship the Father. And in showing us how to worship the Father, we honor him. When your life is spent showing the world how you love the Father, room will be created in your life for you to be honored by people. Because you won't need it. So you'll be able to receive it and get rid of it as quickly as you got it. Jesus' whole life was spent acknowledging the Father. So now the Spirit can come and say, worship Lord Jesus. The room is in Jesus for us to worship him because all he did was show us how to worship the Father. When we live to worship King Jesus through the Spirit in the Father, we have room to be honored and have it not go to our head in the wrong way. Because we're not attached emotionally or spiritually or even psychologically to how people are treating us. It puts you inside the edges in a way where you can receive a claim, but not have it turn into something. Either a disgusting false humility of like, I hate it when I get recognized. No, you don't. Nobody does. Can we be real? When people clap for you, it feels nice. It's why, well, I just told you I like silence, so now I'm kind of in a predicament here. But when you guys clap for me, I do like it. It, it feels nice. But here's the thing. I don't need it. Sometimes I do. I'm not perfect yet. <laughs> this is why I hate preaching, because you say such strong stuff, and your wife is sitting right there, and she's like, you don't, you don't need What? Because I don't need it. Okay. You get what I'm trying to say? Like, I'm Italian. I'm an extrovert. Like, I just want you to feel what I'm trying to say. Don't hang on my every word. It won't be good for anybody. Like, I want you to feel my words, not interpret them. Like, just, where, which one am I at? Oh, impact. When, 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 when outer appearance and motivation are out of whack, look what happens with Herod. It says that when he became anxious, all of his followers became anxious too. When you rule your life with power as the source of your rule, then anyone who's connected to you will know that when you get insecure, you're about to exert power that can be damaging. So all of Herod's followers, when he got nervous, they got nervous. They weren't nervous about the wise men finding Jesus. They were nervous because Herod was nervous. And whenever an insecure, power-hungry man-child gets disrespected, he lashes out like crazy, and the subjects also suffer the punishment for it. So if every time you get upset or something doesn't go your way, the people around you seem like all of a sudden they're walking on eggshells, it may be because you're a Herod. 
I know I'm a Herod, okay? Just get that out there now, everyone. King Herod. Watch this. God let the wise men leave and go home. Watch this. Herod said, when you find him, come back and tell me. Because legalism and power need to own. I'll let you walk away, Pharaoh, right? Fine, you can leave. No, come back. You can leave. No, come back. You can leave. No, come back. Herod, guys, you can leave, but come back. But an angel or the Lord or God or Jesus says to the wise men, you can go home now. Power tries to own. Humility always leads. You ready? The devil always drives. The Holy Spirit always leads. If you can't let go of the people in your life, you're tyrannical. You want to know if a relationship is meaningful? Give it space to not be a relationship anymore. If you give it space to not be a relationship anymore, and it's not, it never was. See, because God lets them leave, there's space in him to have them. Because you can only have what you let go of. We're called to lead and be led. We're not called to own. We're not called to own by intimidation. We're not called to own by hierarchy and and power and all that. We're, We're called to lead. If anyone is under your influence, you are called to lead. And one way you know that you're leading is to not need to keep people here. A lesson I learned very early on pastoring is I will never preach to attendance and I will never withhold what I feel the Spirit is saying because I want to keep you here. Because I'll never know how well the church is doing if I've intimidated everybody into staying. But see, with the group of people I'm looking at right now, I can be excited because I know you want to be here. Whoever gives tithes and offerings or in a first fruit offering, we can be excited because I know they want it to. It's real. When you're willing to let go of something and it comes to you, it's real. When somebody loves you and you're not intimidating them into love you, you know that they love you. When somebody gives you something to say thank you and you haven't thrown out words ahead to say, hey, if you really ever wanted to thank me, you know, I kind of like this. If you haven't done that and somebody just offers something to you and says, hey, I just want you to know I love you, you can receive it and be joyful for them because they're doing it because they want to. Jesus has to let go of his own life so that when God gives it back, Jesus can actually become the author of life because he now has what he was willing to let go of. Now he can give it because he was willing to give it. God can look at Abraham and say, I know you love me because you didn't withhold Isaac, but God can look at Jesus and say, I really know you love me because you didn't even withhold your own life from me. That's why the Trinity is so powerful because it's 100% giving to the three in one. That's why God doesn't love. He is love. Love is not something he does. Love is something that he is because he's always freely giving and therefore he can always be freely receiving from himself. 
So method. Herod's method was deceit. Go find him and then come back and tell me and I'll go worship him. We've done this. We've done this. We've tried to find out what somebody's thinking by talking about a person that we both mutually don't like. Like, I want to know what Tim thinks about me. And I know that Tim doesn't like Kaya. So I'm going to talk with Tim negatively about Kaya think, and, and win Tim's trust just so I can see where Tim's loyalties lie. I love you, Kaya. Right? We deceive, we, we bend and manipulate and, and, and reshape the truth to be able to get information from people. This is too simple. You can't even really preach it. What's Jesus? Plain declaration. Plain declaration. Hey, I know what he says. I know your thoughts. Here's what they are. I know what you were thinking just now when you were having that conversation with each other along the way. Plain declaration. You will see the Son of Man descending from heaven on high. Next time you see me, you won't see me again until you hear, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I will be delivered over to the hands of sinful men, and I will raise on the third day. He proclaimed the truth perfectly, even if it meant his own demise. Plain, and what does that leave room for? When you're willing to just say what's true all the time, God can give you ways to say the plain truth in creative ways that can help people hear it who wouldn't have heard it bluntly. There's two people in my life who are on and off again coming to church. I was talking to one of them, and they started talking about the other person and how they don't really go. And I said, what a wonderful opportunity here to talk to person A about what they're saying about person B, but I don't care about person B. I want them to hear me. You know, I know I get criticized a lot for telling people they should go to church. But honestly, you wouldn't get mad at me for telling somebody who's addicted to heroin they should stop. And I think this is actually more important. Person A is like, oh. Okay. And I heard the click. Because I was, telling, I was talking about something else, talking to them slant. And you can do that when you know that what you're saying is the objective truth that you believe, not because you're trying to twist or manipulate. There's a very thin line between deceit and what Jesus says about being wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We do follow the creator. He has parabolic, hyperbolic, metaphorical ways of talking to people that they get the hint later. Like when he said stuff to the Pharisees and it says they walked away and later realized he was talking about them. Like, we can find ways to do that as long as we're objectively telling what we believe to be the truth and not deceit just to find something out from the other person, but to actually minister to them. And finally, the reality. The reality of Herod is that he's Caesar's pawn. Herod is obsessed with power because he has none. Herod's only there to be a propped up toy so that Caesar can know there's going to be some control in Jerusalem. But really, Pilate has more authority than Herod. And so when you are the kind of person that is always trying to intimidate or belittle or out-talk or outsmart somebody, it's usually because you haven't even found out who you are yet. 
Something else has you, and so you're trying to have everybody else to compensate for the helpless feeling of being enslaved to something else. Jesus, the reality is simply that he's a child of God. He will not start, this is, this is my closing point, he will not start his earthly ministry before he hears God say, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to this. When love does not position us, we need positions to make us feel loved. When love does not position us, we need positions to make ourselves feel loved. When he speaks over his son in the waters of baptism, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's speaking over the body of Christ, which is the church. And he's saying, church, you are my beloved children in whom I am well pleased. Let that position you. And then you can release every other position. You can live in harmony while you disagree. Do we realize that unity is not sameness? When sameness becomes unity, that's where racism comes from. Whites over here, blacks over there. Sameness is not unity. Difference unified under the cross is unity. Disagreement under the cross is unity. Different tastes under the cross is unity. White, black, Spanish, Asian, man, woman, old, young, skinny, big, all that stuff is all unity under the cross. Unity only looks good if there's difference in it. When love positions you, you don't need to jock for position. You can be. Your life doesn't need to get better than it is right now. You can be. If you're lonely, you can be lonely and still feel loved in God. If you're hurting right now, you can hurt and still feel loved in God. You don't need to put pressure on yourself to have to heal in 2019. Just be in 2019. Be loved in 2019. Be accepted in 2019. Don't fight for splendor. Don't fight to be worshipped. Don't try to make people around you feel anxious. Don't deceive people because you're not the enemy's pawn anymore. You belong to the one who gives gold away, who dies so you can live, who's clothed you not in the finest apparel, but in himself. What more could we want heading into 2019? Let's stand to our feet this morning. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.